to Connect Church. My name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're new here, welcome. We're so glad that you chose to come and join us here on Connect, at Connect. It's a great week to come visit if it is your first time because we are kicking off a brand new series. Um, I'm wearing a brand new shirt. It's not plaid, which is kind of scary. So we'll just see how, uh, how that goes this morning. But, but yeah, it's a brand new series this morning called Walls. Okay, Walls. Um, walls. Alright, they're going to have a lot of problems with that, I can see, over the next coming weeks. So, um, <clears throat> the idea being that, you know, walls are a, are a good thing, aren't they? I mean, walls can, can provide protection, you know, that's very important. Uh, they can provide privacy. Uh, just a little side note here, that's a source of contention for uh, Mrs. Jane and myself. Uh, I, I don't know, I know some of you here know where we live, we live here in town and we have to live on the, the corner of a street and our backyard is like kind of right on the main thoroughfare. You know, cars come up and down and people run and ride bikes and walk their dogs and uh, Casey's always like, I want to get a fence. I want to get a fence because all these people, you know, they come by and they can see us and they're all looking in their backyard and seeing us here and I'm like, I don't want to get a fence. I love it. Like all these cars go by, I'm like, do I know? Oh yeah, hey! <laughs> you know, someone's walking the dog, hey buddy! <laughs> Another car, do I know you? Don't think so, but hey! And I'm out there cooking on the grill and just waving and everyone comes by and the case is like, just, just something, some trees and some privacy. But you know, the reality is that although walls have a very important and good uh, purpose in many different areas of our lives, walls, walls can be bad as well, can't they? Walls can have negative connotations. I mean, just think about this wall, for example. This is a very famous wall that most of you uh, will probably remember that once stood. It's called the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall came up not long after the Second World War, and it kind of was a divide between East and West. And it, it found itself kind of right through the middle of Germany, and it split East Germany and West Germany, the communist side and the, uh, the, the not communist side. So, um, and this wall was, was, was famous. It brought division, it divided a city. You know, on the East German side of the wall, there was a, an area that they called the Death Strip. It was a gauntlet of soft sand, and the reason they had that soft sand was so they could see easily footprints if people were trying to get by it. There were floodlights, vicious dogs, tripwire, machine guns, and soldiers all there to guard that wall to stop people getting across. You know, all the years it was, it was up that wall from 1961 to 1989, um, 187 people were killed trying to get over, under, or around the Berlin Wall. And yet, despite that, many did escape. Some climbed over, some drove through unfortified parts of the wall at high speed, some got over in hot air balloons. 5,000 East Germans, including some 600 border guards, escaped to the West. And here's the crazy thing about the Berlin Wall. I can remember in the, the late 80s, it was 1989, and in England there was a, a book that came out and it was, um, it was kind of celebrating all the big news events of the 80s. It was this big, thick, hardback, colourful book with lots of pictures and lots of stories and they wanted to get it out in time for Christmas. So um, around about October, November time, they published this book and it was on the shelves and you could read all these great um, events that took place during the 1980s. It was all the history, all the major current events and world affairs from the 1980s. In November of 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. It wasn't in that book. 
The book was published in October, and one of the greatest, probably the greatest event of the 80s wasn't in this book because it happened right there at the end of 1989. And it happened so quickly. No one at that time could have imagined that wall coming down. And in this series, we're going to look at some walls that, that maybe we've built up in our own lives. They could be walls that went up very quickly and are tied to a specific event. Maybe something someone did and, and that wall is there now to make sure that never happens to me again. Now many of us have, we've learned to kind of accept these barriers, even justify these barriers. It's a good thing, it keeps me safe, it, it protects me from being attacked again, from being hurt again. But in actual fact, sometimes as we look on we realise that, that they're actually keeping me a prisoner as well. I feel like I'm locked inside a world. I'm missing out on all that God has for me outside of this, this walled community that I've become surrounded by. Maybe a wall didn't go up quickly. Maybe it went up slowly, brick by brick over time. Maybe it was a wrong thought or a wrong attitude, a wrong action. Nothing huge, but we didn't deal with it at the time. And over time, we've added to it one brick at a time. And, and now we step back and we realize just how big this wall in our life has become. You know, I think there are even walls that we put up ourselves to hide who we really are, to hide our true selves. Maybe we're afraid of what others would think, and we've built these walls to give the impression that maybe we're something that we're not. And now we're living behind a wall, knowing deep down that it's portraying something that isn't really real. You know, however the wall got there, we know that we're responsible for building it. This time last year, it was around the summer of last year, we did a series, it was one of my favourite series of last year, it was called Slaying the Giants. And we talked over several weeks about these giants that come into our lives and attack us and, and destroy us. And the, the theme of the series, because we were looking at giants like anxiety and grief, was that we have no control of these giants. They just show up and they, they do harm and they do damage. And we talked about how with God's help we can, we can stand against and we can even defeat these giants. Now this is kind of a similar thought, but the difference being here is that very often these are walls that we've put there ourselves. These are walls that we can't really say, I have nothing to do with that. We, if we step back and we're really honest with ourselves, we have created this wall. But in the same way that I shared last year that I felt like God wants to help us defeat giants, I believe that God wants to help us tear down the walls that we've built in our lives. There's a prophet, his name is Isaiah. He says this in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 12, talking about God. He says, he will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. I think God not only wants to see the walls come down, I think he wants to help us do it. So to set the foundation for this series that's going to go on for the next five or six weeks, I want to speak this morning about one of the most famous walls that we read about in the Bible. One of the most famous walls and how miraculously God helped destroy this particular wall. Now some of you may have got there already and you figured out where I'm going. Others may remember when I talk about this, this song that uh, maybe you sang when you were a child, if you were in Sunday school or a VBS, and, and it was that song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came what? They did, they came tumbling down. So we're familiar with that song and that, that story, and, and you know what, that song has been sung, but I don't know that we've completely been singing that correctly. Because the truth is, the walls did come tumbling down. 
And that's a great part of the story that we're going to hear about this morning. But, but to say that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho isn't entirely true. You see, Joshua was there, but we're going to find out this morning that it was far less of a battle that he fought and far more of a, just a miraculous encounter of God. God at work leveling these walls. So before we look at this story of Jericho, I want to kind of just set the, the, the foundation here by looking at Joshua himself. Because who he was affects the story we're going to talk about today. You see, at this point, Joshua is now the new leader of the Israelites. Moses had been the leader before him, and Joshua had served as a leader under Moses. But now Moses has passed away, and Joshua has stepped up to the plate, and he's now the new leader of the entire Israelite nation. And we know, because we've, we've been introduced to Joshua before this point in the life of Moses, we know that Joshua was a man of faith. Joshua trusted God. Joshua believed in God. He was full of faith. And this is an important thing to know as we look at this story about Jericho. You see, we learned from, from years before, over 40 years before the story of Jericho, we learned that Joshua had already been in and around this city. Because you see, Joshua was one of 12 spies that Moses sent out to, to spy on and to check out this new land that God wants to take the Israelites to. You see, if you remember the story, and we've talked about it here at Connect, um, through Moses, God delivers the, um, the Israelites from Egypt where they were slaves. And they spent years walking around the wilderness, but their ultimate destination was this promised land. God had promised them that this was for them. And they were literally right on the brink. I mean, they were at that point in their journey where they were going to step into everything that God had promised them. But they sent out these spies to say, hey, go check it out. And the spies came back, and this is the report that the spies gave. All 12 of the spies had one thing in common to say. You can read it in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. They said, this was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. These spies have brought back with them from this land some of the fruit and the crops. And they said, honestly, it is everything we hoped it would be and more. It's an amazing place. We've been there. We've checked it out. It is fantastic. It's just as God promised it would be. But after this point, the spies kind of go two different directions. Ten of the spies, they start to speak some doom and gloom. They say, yeah, it's beautiful, but, but listen, you need to know this as well. In verse 28, they said, but the people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified, big walls. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And as they're sharing this, the, the rumbling starts to go around the camp like, oh, I'm not sure about this, that sounds a bit scary. I, I, I don't know if we should go there, that, that sounds a bit intimidating. But Joshua and Caleb, their perspective was different. They'd been to the same place with the same spies, but they saw something different because they were men of faith. So because they were men of faith, they actually saw a different picture. They had a different perspective. Listen to what they said in, in Numbers 14, verses 7 through 9. They said to all the people of Israel, the land we travel through and explore us is, is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. 
It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. They were with the same party of spies, the same 12 people, but 10 of them saw things and said, it looks kind of scary. Two of them saw the same things, but had a different take on it altogether. Do you know there's a fish? We're going to put a picture of it up here on the screen. It's an ugly fish. Uh, its name is the Anaplebs fish. It's the only fish like this. It actually is, its nickname is the Four Eyes Fish because it swims on the top of the water and its eyes are able to look above and below the water at the same time. It's the only fish that could do this. And every time I see a picture of this fish, I think of us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this is kind of how God has, has called us to live our lives. The way to look around at all that's going on, but we're also to be aware that we should look at God too. This is what Joshua did. He said, yeah, I saw the giants. I saw the walls. I'm not denying that that's there. I saw all that, but you know what else I saw? I saw God. And I've seen everything that God's done up till this point. And, and I can look at this, but I can look at this as well. And this gets a lot smaller when I look at this. And that was Joshua and Caleb's instructions to the people. And I think that's, that's the challenge we can learn from Joshua and Caleb today as we look at those, those big things in our life, those insurmountable objects in front of us, and we think, man, how am I going to get through this? The way through is by not pretending it's not there and just looking at God, but it's also not looking at it and not looking at God. It's like this fish somehow being able to keep perspective on both. If we're going to stand any chance of seeing the walls in our lives come down, we're going to need to be a little bit more like Joshua and Caleb and a little bit less like the other ten. So knowing now the kind of man that Joshua was, let's jump ahead 40 years and, and let's get to the point where he stood before this huge city of Jericho. You see, his first duty, Joshua, as the, the new leader of Israel, was to lead them across the Jordan River. And you can read about that in, in the first couple of chapters of Joshua 1 and Joshua 2. It's a, it's a book in the Old Testament part of the Bible. It's a fascinating story of the life of Joshua. And you can read how he led the people across the Jordan into the Promised Land. They finally reached the place that they'd been traveling so long to get to. And the very first city they see on the other side of the river is Jericho. This massive city with walls all around it. Now I have to imagine that at that point the people were a little bit fearful. Looking up at that city, realizing that inside that city were warriors and, and the enemy who would fight to keep that city. But I wonder if part of them felt a little bit better because they knew that Joshua was in charge. You see, Joshua had a bit of a track record. Joshua was a mighty leader. He was a great general in the army of Israel. Years before, they'd already seen Joshua lead an army to defeat a group of people called the Amalekites. So they knew what a mighty commander they, he was. There, there was some sense of confidence as Joshua stood there. You know, to use a, an illustration here of, of modern day, you know, maybe as they looked up at Joshua, they saw General Schwarzkopf. Do you remember him? He was the, the leader of the, uh, the Americans in the, uh, the, the war against Iraq. And uh, back there, there's a picture of him there, General Schwarzkopf. Maybe they looked on and they saw, like, General Eisenhower as he battled the Nazis during the Second World War. Maybe when they looked on, they saw General George Washington as he battled the Brit 
Yeah, now let's leave him out of this one. Let's not talk about him right now. Let's go back just to the other two. I like those generals a lot better. But, um... <laughs> like Joshua, I think they looked on at this... Like these generals here, they looked on at Joshua and there was a sense of confidence knowing, you know, if anyone's going to be able to take on this enemy, it's Joshua. He's a mighty general. He's a mighty warrior with a, a proven track record. So I think they were probably getting ready for that first fight with a little bit of confidence. But we discover that God had a different plan. And this is where the whole story gets really interesting. You see, he didn't want the might of Joshua to be the reason for the fall of Jericho. So one day as Joshua is standing, surveying the city, probably drawing up in his head some military plans, he gets a visit. And we read about this at the end of Joshua chapter 5 and the beginning of Joshua chapter 6. We can read this together. It says, when Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied, I am the commander of the Lord's army. You know, as you read this, you realize this is God in the form of man. This is Jesus standing, appearing in the Old Testament in front of Joseph. At this, Joseph fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. Word had got out that this army had crossed the Jordan. They were coming. Word had got out of all the exploits that God had, had been able to do through them in the last few years. And, and, and they, they, they were afraid. So no one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king and all its strong warriors. That's a really important phrase to, to look at in a little bit more detail here. Because when Jesus is standing there speaking to him, he says, when he says, I have given you, or sometimes it's even read in other translations, it says, I have delivered. The original Hebrew word, the way it was written in the very first place, is, um, is a verb, and it's called, it's, it's a prophetic perfect verb. Okay, you don't need to know a lot about that, but let me explain what a prophetic perfect verb is, because it does crop up a few times throughout the Old Testament. It's basically describing a future action as if it were already accomplished. So when God's speaking to him, and it happens several times throughout the Bible, it's God using the past tense to describe a future tense action. So he's speaking about something that's going to happen as if it's already happened. That's a lot of confidence to stand upon. Let me give you an idea of the, the kind of confidence that maybe um, it would be like. Check out this video clip here, maybe you'll be familiar with this. last Sunday night. Yeah, yeah. Those of you who this is a new game, it's called Soccer, and uh, it's catching on a little bit around the world. I think there might be future for it, so uh, keep your eyes on this sport. Um, but the American women, they took on Japan 
And just a little funny story, me and Casey, we, we were at a friend's house last week watching this game. And if you're familiar with the game, it was amazing. 16 minutes in, that was the fourth goal. And we were only 16 minutes into the game. The first two goals came in like five and seven minutes, something like that. We went to a friend's house to watch it, and the adults were upstairs watching the big TV, and the kids were in the basement. We started watching the game, and we're about two minutes in, and we hear this cheer from the basement. And all the kids run up going, go, go. We're like, no, it's not. And we realized that earlier in the day, someone had paused the TV, and we weren't actually watching live. We were on like a seven-minute delay. We're like, so we like skip through to the goal, and just as we get there to watch the goal, we hear the kids go, like, come on! So eventually, by the third goal, we caught up with the rest of the world and were able to watch it live as the goals happened. But the first two goals, we did know about. But here's why I was thinking about this story, okay? 16 minutes in, and America is 4 0 ahead. Now, if you're familiar with soccer, that's pretty much a done deal. That's a really hard deficit for the other team to come back from. There's a lot of confidence right now amongst the team, amongst the people watching. But even though I'm sure there was an American watching who wasn't thinking, we've done it, we've won the World Cup, it still wasn't definite. I mean, it was very uh, strong odds, but it still wasn't definite. But in this case, when God was talking to Joshua, he didn't say, I believe that we will win. He wasn't like really confident that this battle would be won. He was saying, no. The battle has been won. We've already won. You see, I believe there are walls in our lives today that God wants to say the same thing to us too. I think God wants to say, you know what? That wall has been knocked down. Now let's knock it down. Future tense has been knocked down. Prophetic perfect. Now, now let's get this wall knocked down. So God gives Joshua these instructions, and Joshua has to then go back and, and tell the Israelite army how they're going to defeat the city of Jericho, and, and God's instructions are kind of just crazy. They're going to march around the city once a day for the next six days, and then on the seventh day, they're going to march around seven times, and they're going to blow trumpets, and that's how they're going to defeat the people of Jericho. Now, Joshua is a great leader, but I think probably his greatest leadership moment goes uncredited. You see, I, I'm a leader, and I come up with some ideas sometimes, and I know I share these ideas with people, and they're like, seriously? That's a dumb idea. <laughs> and it's really hard to try and convince people that it's my idea, it's a great idea. And uh, sometimes I talk them around, most of the time they talk me down, but, but Joshua now has to go to this army, and have you ever thought about what that would have been like? Joshua's heard from God, and he comes back to the Israelite people, and they're ready. They're ready for war. And he says, I need everyone to gather together. I'm going to tell you how this battle is going to get down. I think the archers were probably right on the edge of their seats because they're like, this is all about us. We're going to take out the guys on the, on the turrets. We'll be the key people in this battle. But I think there were probably some guys as well with battering rams. And they're like, uh-uh-uh. This is all on our shoulders. We are ready. We've got these big old logs and we're going to just charge the gates and we're going to knock them down. They're already carving hashtag Jericho into their logs. But they're like, this is going to be a great battle. They're going to talk all about the battering rams and how we did it. But I think there's probably another group in the Israelite army, the group who are in charge of ladders. And they're like, yes, finally, we've been walking around the desert for years carrying these ladders and we've had no use for them. Check out those walls. This is our day. Those soldiers, they're going to climb these ladders and everyone's going to say, we defeated the people of Jericho because of those guys who built the ladders. 
And I think all these soldiers were probably vying for figuring out who it was. And Joshua stands before me and goes, okay, I need the priests. The priests are like, huh? Well, we were just going to come in afterwards and figure out where to have church. What do you need us for? And he calls the priests up and he goes, okay, you guys play the trumpet, hear the band. I'm going to need you guys too. Because here's how we're going to win this battle. I mean, how do you convince a nation that this is going to happen? But they had so much faith in Joshua. And so much faith in the God that Joshua was following. The God that they'd seen work in their lives. That they said, if this is the way God is going to lead us, then we will follow that, that idea, that plan. And that was the plan, to march around the city. And I have to wonder what the people of Jericho were thinking on day one and day two and day three because the instructions were that they were to march around the city in silence. But in the middle of the army was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was this, this box that the Ten Commandments were kept in. If you've seen Indiana Jones, which is a very true story, I'm sure, you, you'll know what I'm talking about, okay? So they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And it, before and after the Ark are these trumpeters and these ram's horns they've got. And they're just, they're continuously playing. So the people of Jericho, they're kind of looking out over the walls. And all they see is these people, these Israelites they've heard so much about, walking around in silence. And this stinking horn blowing going on and on. What is that noise? And I just think I had to be getting them like even more and more scared. Like, okay, this is freaking me out. What are these people doing? And they finish at the end of the day, they go back to camp. And day two, they do the same. Day three, all the way through to day seven. And then day seven, they don't stop after the first time around. They go around a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and then a seventh time, they march around the city. And when they complete that final lap around the city, listen to what it says happens in Joshua chapter 6, verse 16. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded a long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. And suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. And the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. It's crazy. Maybe some of you knew this story growing up. Maybe some of you are familiar. And even now as you're listening to it again, you're thinking, that is just an amazing story. Hard to believe even that that God would give them such a victory. Why? You see, it was an incredible victory, but more importantly, the method of that conquest was designed to show the people the truth of God's grace. Nothing they did would cause Jericho to fall. God would cause it to fall, and they would receive the city as God's gift. So as we start out this series over the next several weeks, I want us to start looking at the life of of Joshua and Jericho. To kind of look at the way that God used that moment to destroy those walls and and, and stand on that as a promise, stand on that as a foundation that every wall that we talk about over the next four or five weeks, every wall we talk about will be in the light of the idea that God wants to destroy walls. God wants to knock down walls miraculously. So just looking at the life of Joshua as we um, come towards the end of the message this morning, just looking at the life of Joshua, how does that help us today? It's a great story, but what what relevance, what application does that have for me this week as I live out my life? What can I learn from the life of Joshua? You know, as I was studying for this message and preparing it, there were two things that just kind of really jumped out at me. Two things that I think we can take from the, the life of Joshua 
his experience, this experience with Jericho that we can apply on a daily basis in our lives. The first is this. Sometimes God wants you to let go. Sometimes God wants you to let go. Here's what I mean by that. Joshua went on after Jericho. If you read through the book of Joshua, he went on to fight a lot of conventional battles using his own skills, giftings, and military prowess. He really was a mighty warrior. I read once that even today, that in military academies and military schools, that Joshua's battles are still some of the battles that they study because of the tactics and the warfare that he used. God had given him this gift to be this mighty general with, with wisdom to be able to lead the armies. And, and, and many more battles Joshua and the Israelites fought in conventional ways and won. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's a lot of great ways to win these battles. There's a lot of great ways to take down walls. And there are many conventional ways in our lives that we can see those walls dismantled. There are some great tools that, that God has given us. There's some great skills and people with some great skill sets that can help us. You know, maybe you've been coming to Connect for a while now and, and you're part of a small group. It's been my life as a follower of Christ in all these years that I've seen many walls dismantled and destroyed just through the setting of a small group environment where couples or individuals meet together and, and sometimes they'll eat together and chat together and pray together and do life together and as time goes on, they'll open up and get a little bit more honest and a little more open and then some, some vulnerability will reveal a situation in someone's life where they'll say, you know what? I trust you guys and love you guys enough to say, listen, this is a wall that has been built in my life. And I've watched conversations and, and people come around and say, we want to help you. We want to pray with you. We want to talk you through this. We want to hold your arms as you work through this because we want to help you dismantle this wall in your life. I've had some great conversations with people who have hit, hit walls and, and they've met with, with a professional, a counselor, and very often a Christian counselor who's able to use scripture and, and just great counseling techniques to say, listen, let me help you one by one take the bricks out of that wall. Let me help you dismantle and destroy that wall in your life. Some will sit through a series here at Connect and the light will just go on. Maybe you're still looking at what it means to be a follower of Christ. Maybe you're new in this journey as being a follower of Christ. And, and one day we've been talking about something and we've, we've had a verse from the Bible up on the screen. And it's just something like the light. And you're like, you know what? I've never thought about that before. I've never thought about the fact that that has become a wall in my life. And it's been that simple. You've left this gymnasium on a Sunday morning thinking, I need to make a change. That, that's got to go. I'm not reaching my full potential as a follower of Jesus if I'm going to keep that wall there. And I need to work out how to get that wall down. In fact, some of you this morning may even discover that the wall in your life is actually separating you from God. Maybe you're here this morning, we have a lot of people who visit on a regular basis, even who attend on a regular basis, who've not yet made that decision to, to follow Jesus. There are often a number of reasons, but, but one of those reasons sometimes is that something's, something's come up, there's a wall, or whatever that wall is, it's almost like a barrier between, between you and God, and, and you see it, and you see him at work in the lives of others, and you, you want it, but you can't get past this wall. And even that, maybe that's a wall that God wants to help you get through today. You know, I'm convinced if that's you this morning, God is dying to knock that wall down. You haven't got to worry about how it's going to come down there. You just say, God, get this wall out of the way, and it's gone. You don't have to fight or work hard to get through that wall. 
But I think for some of us this morning, the wall that might be in our life is big and it's intimidating. And you can see no way around it or over it. And I think in those situations, sometimes God just wants us to let go. The same God who demolished the walls of Jericho and got the glory because of it wants to miraculously demolish the walls in your life. Do you know, have you ever thought about this? Because I want you to understand what it means when I say God's demolishing the walls. These walls of Jericho, I mean, they would have been like 15, 20 feet thick. You know, if you read earlier on, there were people that lived inside the walls. I mean, they were like houses inside the walls. That's how thick they were. So have you ever thought about this? If those walls were just knocked over, the Israelites still wouldn't have been able to get over them. That's still like 20 feet high. If those walls just crumbled down, that pile of rubble, they, it says that they just marched straight on in. You, you would have taken ladders and ropes and everything. Somehow, miraculously, I don't know what happened, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I just have to imagine that God somehow, with his hands, just went... And those walls just got sucked into the ground or they, you know, just disappeared into the ground because it says that the Israelites marched straight into the city. I'd never thought about that until I was preparing this message. I'm like, wow, God doesn't just want to make a mess out of this wall. God wants to get rid of this wall altogether. God wants to demolish these walls in our life altogether. But sometimes God wants us to let go and trust him. Because the only way to get through it is with his help. You know the second thing I thought about when I was looking at Joseph? Nothing, because I'm looking at Joshua. The second thing I thought of when I was looking at Joshua was this. Sometimes it takes more than one time around. Sometimes it takes more than one time around. Do you ever wonder why they had to walk around seven times? And over the course of seven days... You know, I know there's symbolism to the number seven. It's perfection. A lot of Bible scholars say that there was even a message there that God was sending to the Israelites and the people in that area. You know, just the idea of seven. I believe that. But I think that's a simpler answer than that. I think it takes a certain amount of faith to walk around the wall believing God's going to destroy it. But I think it takes even greater faith to walk around it again the next day and see nothing change. And day three. And day four. Day five, and not, you know, we thought we'd see some cracks by now. You know, we thought this would be like a gradual process. We'd see some um, benefit to these walks we're doing, but nothing is changing. Day six, day seven, one time around, two times around, still nothing. What kind of faith does it take for these people to just keep trusting that this isn't the stupidest idea we've ever had? But we can keep walking and keep trusting and keep trusting God. When I read this story, I think God is using it to stir up that kind of faith in me. To stir that kind of faith up to know that for us to experience that prophetic perfect or knowing that the, the wall has been destroyed, we have to have that faith to keep walking and keep believing and not giving up. Even though we can stand on the promise that God has destroyed the wall, which I believe he wants to in many of our lives, it's still that faith to walk it out every day and say, God, I'm standing on that promise. I'm, I've not seen it answered yet, but I'm going to go around the wall again. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to keep praying and keep asking for a miracle. You know, sometimes I think maybe we, we doubt, maybe we, we, we pull back too soon, and maybe we give up on God in those situations. And there's an element to that faith that sometimes I think we've, we've lost. 
Maybe it's because we live in a society where it's too easy to find means or answers in many other places that we don't need to rely fully on God. I want to close out with a story this morning that I hope will, um, you know, if your faith is like a, a, a coal, I hope this, this kind of re, relights it, that the, the embers um, burn bright again. Because this story is about a man by the name of George Muller. Now, if you've heard of George Muller, he lived in England in the 1800s. He was a very famous follower of Jesus. He was an evangelist. He would travel around and, and speak in churches and, and tell the good news of Jesus wherever he went. But in that time in England, there was, you know, if you're familiar with the Charles Dickens stories, you know, there was orphans and there was a lot of poverty and a lot of children just living out on the streets. And this broke George Muller's heart. Because he felt like his job um, or his calling as a follower of Christ wasn't just to communicate the gospel, it was to live out the gospel. And he couldn't just preach and teach where he could see children starving on the streets. So he and his wife, they started to take these children into their home and feed them and clothe them. And this got bigger and bigger to where they started to buy other homes. And then one day they were like, you know, we need to just buy one huge home where we can house all of these children. And, and, and he did this. He, he was able to build this home in a, a place in England called Bristol. And um, it was a massive place and it was an orphanage and it housed these orphans. But the amazing thing about George Moore, if you read about him, he was a man of faith and a man of prayer. He never borrowed the money. He never went in debt. He just prays that, God, I believe that you can do this. And, and people would give donations. People would hear his heart and they would help. And every time he prayed and every time he asked God, another miracle would happen. And, and you read the story and you, you, you just learn so much from this man of faith. You say, God, I believe you can supply my needs. I believe you can meet my needs. This orphanage in England that he built, it cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. He set up 117 schools that offered Christian education to over 120,000 children, many of whom were orphans. He changed the face of that country and the problem that was going on. There's a really famous story of a time where they were never in excess. They always just got by. And this one morning in the orphanage, the kids were all sat waiting for breakfast and the, the cook came to George Muller and said, Mr. Muller, we have no food at all. There is nothing in the house. He said, well, gather the children. We're going to get ready for breakfast. This was the level of faith and trust that this man had in his God. He says, the children got together in the big dining hall. He says, kids, we're going to pray and we're going to thank God this morning for breakfast. Because we're going to trust that God provides. He led them in this prayer and he thanked God for the beautiful meal. I mean, they're praying. They're, you know, maybe some of you pray before your meal. It's a lot easier, isn't it, when it's there and steam's coming up for it. It's like, I can pray for this meal. In fact, it's going to be a short break because it smells good. And um, he's praying for the meal and there is no meal. When he got done praying, there was a knock at the door and it was the baker from the village. He says, you know, we've, we've baked this bread and I just hear what we're doing with the children. I want to give you a donation this morning. I bought a, tr a, a cart full of bread that I want to give. At the same moment, the milkman was doing his rounds and his milk cart had broken down at the end of the drive of this orphanage. He came to me and said, I can't get this fixed in time and my milk will spoil. Could you take all the milk? George Wallace said, definitely. And that morning, the kids ate their breakfast. And you read the story of this man's life and you see how God provided in these miraculous ways. And I think as this series goes on, each week we're going to look at a different wall. 
And I think some of the weeks will be wars that you'll identify with, some maybe not so, or maybe they're wars you've identified with in the past or the future, but um, through it we'll, we'll come up with some, some practical ways that we can help you to dismantle those walls. But I think through it all, I want to stand on the shoulders of Joshua and his faith this morning and believe that even though there are many ways to destroy walls, God set this example, the very first battle that Joshua fought could only have been won because of God. All the credit had nothing to do with Joshua, nothing to do with the people. It was God's mighty hand at work. And my prayer through this series is that some of us will lean into God and say, God, I feel like I've marched around this wall in my life five times and still nothing's happened. I was ready to give up, but you know what? I'm gonna go out and march around again. And I may have to march around several more times, but I believe like that man who ran that orphanage, that you are the God who hears our prayers, you are the God that still wants to destroy the walls in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, Lord, for this series, Lord, I really believe that through these next few weeks, you're going to challenge us, Lord, and some of us will be aware already now of some walls that we've put up in our lives and these come down, and I think some of us, even over the next few weeks, are going to suddenly have some light shone on the wall that we weren't even aware was there. And we're like, man, that's, that's, that is a wall, and God's showing this to me, and I need to do something about this now. But thank you, God, that as we go into this series, it's built upon the foundation of a man who saw your mighty hand at work, of an amazing miracle where the walls were destroyed. Not just knocked down, not just crumbled, but destroyed completely. And we stand on that promise this morning, believing that the same God that did that all those years ago can still do that in our lives today. So help us through this, Lord, I pray. Help us to be open and honest and vulnerable and ready for you to work in our lives through this series. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.